Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, I'm very excited to have the uh, first pastor who's been willing to come on, and uh, I really, really am excited for this conversation. Uh, I forgot to ask you when we weren't recording, but I will let you uh, introduce yourself. Do you prefer Doug or Douglas? Uh, Doug, I only hear Douglas when I'm in trouble, and that's my wife or my mother. All right, sounds good. Then I'll make sure to call you Doug. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Do you want to give just a quick little bio about um, where you are and what you're doing? Wow, I don't know if I can do that quick. Um, um, I am currently, I I wear a couple different hats. Uh, I'm pastor of a a church in Nazarene in suburban Chicago, uh, Mundelein Church in Nazarene. Uh, I have been here for about 18 years. Uh, Before that, I pastored in Kansas and Texas. Um, I also am a professor of biblical literature at Olivet Nazarene University. So um, I both teach uh, biblical courses and I pastor church. I also do a little bit of writing, um, have a couple books out there, uh, a, a book on uh, the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I also just now out uh, a book on the book of Daniel from the Old Testament. And a book a couple years ago called uh, I Object, uh, 12 Uncommon Answers to Common Objections to Christianity. So between that and then in my free time, uh, when I get it, I like to referee high school basketball games in the winter. Uh, I like running around a gym. Other people pay money to uh, get in shape in the winter. I like to get paid for running around a gym in the winter. And that money goes into an envelope that funds a pretty persistent, uh, committed golf habit in the summer. And uh, so, uh, plus, I'm a lifelong, very frustrated, very frustrated Cleveland Indians fan, Cleveland Browns fan. But that is, that's just my lot in life. Um, Outside of that, everything's good. That's awesome. I actually have uh, done some uh, basketball refereeing myself. Uh, it's a great way to uh, get some get some uh, loose change, so to speak. Um, and I have read your book, by the way, the uh, the I object. I have read it, um, and it was it was definitely not what I was expecting. I, I really did enjoy it. Um, so, uh, my first question for you, really, just to get a little more context about you, how did you interact with Christianity? Maybe the first eighteen years of your life. Oh, you know, I was, I grew up in church. Um, I think up until the age of five, um, I grew up in a family that attended United Methodist Church in Indiana. My dad was a veterinarian in a small town. And uh, about age five, my dad decided that uh, he didn't want to have a family anymore. Um, and he made other decisions in life, and so a divorce happened. My mom moved back to our hometown in Ohio. Hometown for, was the hometown for my dad and my mom. Both sets of grandparents were there. And then 
she went back to the church she grew up in, which was the Church of the Nazarene uh, in in Marion, Ohio. And uh, I grew up in the church. Um, now, at a time, um, maybe some listeners will understand, in the 70s and uh, graduated from high school in the early 80s. Um, so I'm taking us up to about 1983. We had a, a church that was filled with wonderful people and uh, people that made a tremendous difference in my life, but a church that was still probably a little bit, eh, more than a little bit, um, still caught up in a kind of maybe legalistic um, expressions of Christianity. And so my mom, who was divorced, sometimes, you know, it was this odd thing. She, why are you divorced? There was a time when divorce wasn't really... Um, it was looked down upon, even in her case, when she was kind of the victim, not the perpetrator. And um, there were also times, like I remember we used to have Sunday night church, and we'd have a teen event afterwards, and there were every other Sunday night we weren't in church because that was the day my dad came for visitation rights. And so we were actually kind of fulfilling kind of the court-ordered arrangement and I remember a, a conversation or two that a, a church leader had with my mom about being more committed um, and so it was in many ways good uh, there were bumps there were my goodness there were summer camps and um, there were mission trips to New Mexico and Appalachia that that were formative and also there were times where you just stopped and went hmm, that doesn't seem right to me and uh, so it was probably not unlike a lot of people, but my particular case was might be a little interesting because it was a case in a, at a time before it was maybe as widespread as it is now that had to do with divorce and remarriage and blended families and how that all fit in with the larger dominant church ethic of the time. Thank you. Yeah, that, that um, paints quite a picture. Uh, when did you decide to become a pastor? Oh, I... I, I suppose some weeks I'm still deciding, um, but uh, um, I it was never probably, there were times in my teenage years, I don't know how one of these things came to be, um, but every time in elementary school, junior high, if there was some school program um, where they needed a narrator or MC, somehow I got, I got stuck with that, um, and as I got to my older teen years, I'm starting my, my junior year of high school, it was something that was not far from my mind. It was like it was a possibility, but I wasn't really thinking about it. There was a time I was thinking about pursuing law school. I wanted then to go to the Air Force Academy, and there was once I was sitting in the congressman's office for the interview because um, you have to get appointed by a congressman or senator. And even though I went through that process when I came out of there, I just had the strongest sense that's not what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I went to college in the Chicago area. And uh, in that summer between my senior year of high school after graduation and the beginning of my freshman year of college, it became more and more of a realization um, in our talk before this, you use the word call. So I think you understand it. It's just, I feel this, this very uh, urgent, overwhelming sense that I needed to go into full-time Christian ministry. And so culminating with my first semester of my freshman year, 
Um, I kind of battled with it for a couple months and met my wife during that time. She was just a girlfriend then, and there was a lot of decisions along the way, but came out of that with the very strong sense that um, that is what I was supposed to be doing um, and needed to do. And so it culminated, I guess, with my freshman year of college, though there's been interesting bumps along the way. But uh, um, that, that, that sense, that call has never left me. Uh, it just became as evident and as plain as anything else in my life. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that feeling. Uh, I would say that was very close to what I felt around 17 years old myself. Um, you know, what? thinking about maybe how you grew up versus now, what's the biggest, um, if there is one thing or maybe a couple things, what's the biggest difference in your faith now than when you were first a Christian? That's a good question. Um, so I think that part of this is built upon kind of who I am um, just as a person, I think you'll understand in the, in that time in the church in the seventies, there was a certain amount of kind of, uh, an emotionalism that was present. There was, uh, it was very experientially based. You, you, you're supposed to feel it, um, the conversion experience was often viewed as this emotional either release or emotional high point that one got to. And as I'm older, I've probably lost all of that. Or I never was really a part of that anyway. I was always uncomfortable with that. So now, probably my faith now is much more, um, it's, it's, it, it, emotion's not a part of anything at all. It's much more uh, a rationally cohesive um, part of my life. I'm a person that has to have all the dots connect, and it's it's kind of get fanatical about having all my dots connect. Um, so it's a lot more of that. Um, it's also, I learned a little bit along the way. There was probably a lot in life, if you ask me what, what, what a good Christian was when I was a teenager, I, I could have listed the checklist of all the things that a Christian either did do or did not do. And the checklist was probably pretty extensive. And what I've learned along the way is, is, is now, um, it's, I've learned that, uh, if, 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 if you don't love everybody, um, you're just, you're just playing house. You're, it, you, you don't really have a part of the faith. You're just kind of playing games with it. And, and I've learned it all flows it all flows from that. And so it's a lot more uh, about the people and uh, living life with them. And it flows from love. It doesn't flow from a moral code or it doesn't flow from a checklist or a, a list of do's and don'ts. That's interesting that you uh, kind of contrast it that way when love is certainly it's love is certainly more than an emotion, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's like, even though you, you see the, the dangers of sort of the sensationalist revivalist type of, um, faith, you also are recognizing that like there, that it ultimately does come back to love is, is how do you, do you wrestle with that tension sometimes? Uh, I'm not sure I'm getting where the tension is. Um, if you can maybe just, word it differently my apologies 
Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I, I'm more just like, okay, so love, I'm sure you and I would agree, is much more than just a simple feeling. Like, it's not just uh, a fleeting feeling. It's a it's conscious decision. It's commitment. It's a lot of things. Yes, uh, correct. Wrapped up in love. Yes. Um, but there's certainly an emotive element to it. Am I wrong in that? No, I think you're right. I think the emotive element is very small, though. I, I It's very small in, in, in my world. I think the emotive elements come and go. My goodness, uh, my emotions can come to go depending on whether I had pepperoni on my pizza last night. Um, and, and and I think sometimes we can get we can get on shaky ground when we're always seeking after or desiring a certain feeling. And I think that has been a weakness in elements of the church in previous generations. And so I, I'm much more comfortable talking about love as an action, as a decision, as a commitment than as an emotion. Sure, it's a part, but I think a very small part. Okay, cool. Uh, well, maybe shifting to some of the more um, intellectual and factual and rational-based type questions. Um, you're someone who has both studied and taught the New Testament, so I'm sure you've heard this question before. Uh, what makes the New Testament writings reliable from an archaeological or linguistic standpoint? Um, I'm not sure. So archaeology has is is much less to do with the New Testament than a lot of people want to make it to the Old Testament. Um, there are issues in the New Testament. So, for instance, um, most of, in fact, all of the Gospels were written by people who were not eyewitnesses to the events heard things secondhand, thirdhand, 30 years later, 50 years later, 60 years later, depending on which gospel you're talking about. And so you have this realm. So let's say in the gospel of Mark um, and Luke, some, sometimes the, arche, the archaeology is a little bit off. And then the gospel of John, actually, it's quite accurate. <clears throat> in fact, there are things described in John that for years were were dismissed and recent evidence like the pool of Siloam was, wow, look at that. It's there. And it's actually quite where the gospel says it is. Um, I don't know what you mean by linguistic um, because I mean, the new Testament is written in a completely different language. It's written in Koine Greek, which was kind of the street language of the Greek world. And it really wasn't even spoken. It was a written language mainly. Um, and if you grew up in Algeria or Alexandria or Tarsus or Rome or Jerusalem, um, you would write in Koine Greek. This much the same is no matter where you are in the world, everybody kind of learns English as a second language. It's the language of business. It's the language of contracts. Koine Greek was the language that wherever you were in the Roman world, you would kind of write in it. So everybody else in the Roman world would uh, understand it. Um, and then of course, for the first three, uh, 260 years or so, these letters, these Gospels were collected and were kind of hidden away because to share them publicly would have invited a death sentence. Um, so then all of a sudden you get past 315, and now all of a sudden it's okay to come out in the open, and there was councils, and they met, and they shared notes. And as these were being copied, sometimes you have, um, boy, you had uh, mistakes made or someone didn't think a sentence made sense, so they altered it a little bit so it made sense. And so 
you do have little linguistic differences in some of the Gospels, some of the sentences along the way. Um, I don't know that that's to be unexpected. I don't know if that's what you're aiming at, but I'm just trying to get into the background a little bit of the New Testament to under, so people understood kind of how it came into being. We have this, most people in churches even, have this idea all of a sudden the Bible, the New Testament floated down on a cloud with an angelic chorus speaking, uh, singing behind it. And that's just not the case at all. Paul is, Paul in Galatians is angry. Man, he is, he's not a temper tantrum, but he's pretty close to it. And he's angrily jotting off a letter, had no idea that would become scripture. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering written questions that were given to him. He had no idea he's writing Bible or scripture. Um, And uh, so you have all these different kind of genres and different kind of writings that 250, 200, 300 years later, people went, wow, that's valuable. We think that accurately represents this faith. We need, this is going to be our authoritative document. So I don't know if that helps at all, but there there are linguistic things and archaeological things that went into the creation of these documents. Absolutely. I think that's very helpful um, to kind of like, yeah, like you said, even a lot of people in churches seem to think the Bible uh, came about in somewhat mystical ways. Um, but it really was uh, just an arrangement of different letters and accounts. Uh, and you brought up that like later on that it was when people were like more attributing maybe some of these ideas of um, inspiration or inerrancy or other things back onto the New Testament. The New Testament must have been influential uh, in culture. Why do you why do you think the New Testament is so influential? Um, so real quick, uh, the, the inerrancy, had, except for in a few small groups relatively recently, inerrancy has never really been part of the Christian um, uh, article of faith about scripture at all. That's, that's never been part of it. Um, except in small groups relatively recently. Um, it, it, the New Testament's easily been the most influential document that has ever existed. Um, and for a lot of different reasons, first of all, um, it was really the first one document that I can think about that people from a lot of different cultures and a lot of different places did so much work to to copy, produce, and possess. Um, it was also the first book that was mass produced when Gutenberg made a printing press. So this is literally the first book that a lot of people ever read. And it was a time when most people weren't um, literate at all. And then you have, in our world, the Western world, um, you had English was this language that was in this rapid time of transition. Um, and right in the middle of this time of transition, King James authorizes this Bible that probably more than anything else had had more to do with establishing the contents and rules of our modern English language. It was literally the book that our language uh, formed around because right in the middle of this time of transition, Boom, you have this book that all of a sudden everybody had possession of, everybody was reading, and so you have common phrases and common language and a common way of looking at the world, and I think all of those kind of play into it before we even get to the contents. Um, and, uh, uh, and the contents and the stories that also have proved so influential over time. So I think that could i think that's the main reason 
yeah that that makes a lot of historical sense um you know this is maybe a much harder question do you think that the new testament is theologically coherent yes absolutely theologically coherent yes it is that now that does not mean that <clears throat> coherence does not mean unanimous agreement coherence means the message and the overall theme weaves together in a very logical um very understandable way so yes theologically coherent is a wonderful word and a wonderful way to describe it gotcha um i might push a little bit harder on that question uh push away so is the new testament theologically coherent without some understanding of trinitarian theology well i i would say yes because because uh Trinitarian language is, you know, anybody who's been in the church, the Trinity is one of those things that people spend the most time discussing, one could say in certain councils arguing about. Um, and the language is there, but it's certainly there, but not in a, sometimes not even, not in the clarity or the clear way that we would wish it would be. But yes, because I think there's, my goodness, the coherence of, um, the coherence of a God who comes to Earth Himself, and uh, dies in the place of His people. That's 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 a story that outside of um, more nuanced understanding that kind of stands on its own. Some of the things that you know Paul was dealing with, let's say the issue in Galatia. I mean, that is an interesting story that stands on its own and, and and themes emerge i would hate to think that you have to have this nuanced understanding of a fairly deep um concept in order to have the new testament be coherent at all i i don't think it rests on a, a developed nuanced understanding of the trinity okay cool yeah i certainly don't either um do, do, you, you keep bringing up Paul, and so I just have to ask, do you think Jesus and Paul preach the same gospel? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Now, I know there's people out there who, who would say that they don't. Um, you have to understand, Jesus said, Jesus was speaking to a group of people all with a common understanding. Every Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost house of Israel. The entirety of Jesus' ministry took place in a Jewish context. In fact, outside of a couple very um, sporadic cases, Jesus never talked to a Gentile. Um, you had the Syrophoenician woman, maybe the centurion. But Jesus is talking to nothing but Jews, so they all have this common understanding. Now Paul comes, and Paul is now, let's say, in Rome, and Paul is talking to Gentiles. Paul is talking to Romans. Paul is talking to Greeks. Paul is talking to Jews. He's talking to rich. He's talking to poor. And so you have this person who's now trying to bring this message that was delivered in a Jewish context and bringing it to a pagan, Gentile, Roman, Greek, cosmopolitan situation. And that requires a whole different 
level of engagement. And so we always have to bring context to it. And Paul's context is just so um, difficult that I think we 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 underestimate um, the difficulty Paul faced when he was in a town writing his letters. Sure. The one other thing I want to say about Paul before moving on, though, is on um, you know this is a pretty uncharitable way to read it, and I'll I'll admit that, but. Paul seems to um, not be a great guy before um, Jesus is in the picture, uh, you know, and self-admittedly so. Uh, and then in later parts also declares himself, you know, the worst of all sinners and such. Um, and meanwhile, Jesus is claiming at minimum to be sent by God if he's not claiming to be God himself. I think he is. Um, so that alone are, are two different orators of the good news. Um, and you're saying different context as well definitely plays in, and I agree. Um, so what about their message is the same? Paul grounds... First, first of all, let me... I'll get to that. I think we... I think we in the church proclaim a false message about Paul. So there's a couple things we say about Paul that are just 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 wrong. And they're said so much that, that everybody kind of becomes part of their thinking, but it's just plain wrong about Paul. For instance, Paul went around killing Christians before. No, he didn't. Um, that is, in fact, if, if you wanted to get crucified yourself, the quickest way to do it is start handing out death penalties because the only people... Uh, Rome claimed that right for themselves. So what Paul would have been doing is Paul would have been going into synagogues, clearing up, bringing Jewish charges against Jews that were um, that were um, speaking false doctrine. Now that could have been removal from the synagogue. That might even, um, if they had uh, a arrangement ecclesiastically within the Jewish faith to maybe throw even a Jew, Jewish leader rabbi in prison. But a Jew in the Roman Empire did not have the capability of killing people. So um, in another part, in Philippians, Paul says that uh, he didn't, he lived without sin. So we have to keep that little self-portrait of Paul in mind as well. Now, back back, back to your question. Paul, Paul grounded everything um, in a couple things. Paul, Paul grounded everything. I preach Christ and him crucified. Um, Paul talked about uh, he's, where Jesus says, uh, uh, love your neighbors yourself. That is a verse Paul continued to go back to, Leviticus 19, 18. Um, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus and Paul um, said that. Um, Paul talked about, again, um, the royal law of love, which is where Jesus flowed a lot of his messages from but just paul is dealing with this issue is how do we get the gentiles into the church where jew and gentile are in together and so paul is dealing with another thing but the foundation of paul's message where he's grounding all his work from um it happens to flow from the same verses in the same places that jesus does Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And yes, I appreciate your um, continued uh, efforts to be very clear about the context of the time. That's something that's lacking in church. Um, so thank you for continuing to do that. Um, 
In fact, how do you um, apply letters and accounts written in such a different context to like our current Western culture? Boy, that's the trick, isn't it? Um, so one of the things that uh, that's that that's my thing. Um, so let me just get. So I did my undergrad work, uh, Olivet Nazarene University, where I currently teach. I did my master's work at Wheaton College, which, uh, if if these words mean something, uh, Olivet is more Arminian in its approach. Wheaton drifts a little Calvinistic. And then I did doctoral work up at Marquette in Milwaukee with the Jesuits. Uh, real, real quick, I just want to chime in in case the listener doesn't know. In general, what we mean when we use those terms loosely is Calvinism talks more about God determining everything. Arminianism focuses more on humans' free will. Is that fair to say? Oh, very fair. That's just a very brief way to say it. Yes. Yep. So, um, so I've, I've, I've had education at. Uh, with Catholics, with Protestants, with Calvinists, with Arminians, kind of the uh, um, kind of uh, the whole thing. Um, so, but when you get to a letter, it's real important to keep the context in mind, or you're going to make mistakes. For instance, you know, a lot of people you'll go to their mirror; they'll have Philippians four thirteen on their mirror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And maybe you know, like a lot of us, after Thanksgiving, after Christmas, we jump on a scale and we go, "Oh my goodness, I gained ten pounds. I got to lose this." And I, I, I got to go on a diet. I got to start exercising. How am I going to do this? I'm not motivated. And I put my Philippians 4.13 on the mirror. I can do all things. Yes, I can do this. I can lose the weight. Now, that's perfectly applicable as long as we all understand that Philippians is not about weight loss. And that's the mistake we make. We have to keep context. Context over everything. So that requires some work, and that requires some effort. And so when you get to Corinthians, and there's a lot going on in Corinthians, you need to understand the background of what's happening on the ground in Corinth. Um, in fact, sometimes, you know, you, you, Paul writes in Corinth, I wish all of you were as I am, and I've heard a lot of people run off that. See, Paul's not married. Paul's wishing everybody was like him, single. Um, and I think that's that's tragic. I think the evidence is really clear. Paul was married. Um, and so we kind of leave the context behind. Um, so when when we get to a book like Galatians, what's happening in the background of Galatians where Paul says, um, um, we who are Jews and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing all the little rules and checklists but by the faithfulness of Christ, well, it helps to know what we think is the issue. Is the issue that Paul is being accused of being unfaithful, or is he accused of leading all the Gentiles to be unfaithful, or is he being accused of trying to lead Jews away? And that colors what we think's going on there. So we have to keep the context very much in mind, or we can make mistakes with the text. So I would say it must be grounded in history or we can, anybody, a, a, a church leader or a critic can, can just make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. We have to keep it grounded in the roots of history in order to understand what was meant when it was first read, when it was, what was meant when it was first written, or it's really, it doesn't have much value as a document. 
I absolutely agree, but I think this is actually where a lot of the rub comes when it when we're trying to decide whether this is a um a mere book or something more, right? Because um obviously if we're going to say it's a maybe it comes down to whether we view it as as a guidebook for life or not. Um because if we do, then we have to sort of go, well, not everyone has access to understanding the complete historical context of the letters or of the Gospels, right? Right. If there's something significant about the message of the Bible, you would think it would almost have to be significant without the context. And I I, I hear you that it's very dangerous. And I'm sure you and I have heard <laughs> a lot of horrible things said um, using the Bible as the base. Um, and a lot of the problem was taking, uh, verses out of context, but, um, I don't know how, how do you solve that kind of tension between like there, there's a, there's a sacredness to this book without the historical context or am I wrong on that? I would say I, you know, I'm not trying to be mean or disrespectful or anything else. I, 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 I fundamentally disagree. I, I just think you're wrong. Um, when it was written and the people in Corinth sat down and read it, they just understood it because it was in their language, in their culture. They saw the events being played out right in front of them. We are now 2,000 years removed from those events. So we, we, we have to try to get back and keep those in mind. So let, let me just try to give an example. A few years ago, my wife and I went to a production of Shakespeare in the Park on a beautiful summer evening, and they were doing a production of Love's Labor Lost. Now, Love's Labor Lost has been the plot line of almost every sitcom, one episode of every sitcom that's ever been. But anyway, so there is a character in Love's Labor Lost called the Fantastical Spaniard. And when it's played... It's usually played with a very flamboyant, effeminate flair. Um, and halfway through, my wife said, "Why? Why are they doing that? That 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 that, that bugs me." And I said, I'll, "I'll explain it after, after it's over." And as we got back in the car, I said, "You have to remember, Shakespeare was written in the 1500s. Who was the enemy of England?" In the 1500s, what was Spain and the great Spanish fleet? And so what that really was, it was just a character that was kind of a dig at England's enemies. So today, without the context, we think it's about something else or one of the little, you know, pet um, pet topics that are going around in our modern world. But if you kept in mind the world of William Shakespeare, you saw that that was just kind of an, a, a dig at England's enemies. So this we have this going on all the time we don't and and just we need to we need to always do our best and while everybody will not have that i believe there is value in the bible there is value um some of the words that i read growing up with with that without understanding were certainly words that were helpful that i needed at a particular time of life but if I'm going to be part of a group, and the, and the Bible is not about whether it's a sacred book on its own. I don't know that that's what we would, any Christian would say. I mean, they would say it's holy. I mean, 
that that's part of it. I, I I mean maybe not maybe not every Christian, but certainly the large part is assuming that the Bible has some sort of sacred weight. Now, plenty of disagreements on what that would mean, of course, but uh, I I would think it's a pretty orthodox Christian view to hold the Bible um higher than other books. Yes, but not just because of its existence, but because the church has deemed it this is our uh, standard for practice and doctrine. So it's not just because it exists, the church has deemed it to be. So I would not say, I would not go to just pull somebody off the street and 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 shove a Bible in their face and say, this is a sacred book for you. I might say, I hope maybe some point in the future it's a sacred book for you. It's not sacred because it exists in a leather-bound uh, condition. It's sacred because those who believe have deemed it so. Does that make sense? I think so. I think that's um, definitely different than the approach of understanding it as God-inspired that that um, at least, you know, conservative, maybe leaning white evangelicals would typically um, would typically preach it as. I, I, I think you're right about a lot of this, by the way. I'm just more um, I'm more trying to get at the point of, uh, you know, what if the New Testament uh, specifically. And again, I would love to talk to you about the Old Testament, too. I'm actually have studied the Old Testament a lot more and am way more fascinated by it because I like stories more than uh, letters. But um, but I but I will um, kind of push and say, well, I, I do think the New Testament is the basis of most Christian doctrine. Yes, absolutely. And yes, you need the Old Testament to understand context is a large part of why Christians keep the Old Testament and don't say, you know, and don't just throw it away, although some certainly do. Um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is uh, there, there's certainly a message of the Bible. The gospel is what it would be, you know, uh, shorthanded as. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost, I don't want to say academic or elitist, that's maybe a little too strong, but. Uh, yeah, the original audience would have understood the context, obviously, and then us with all our books and technology in the past hundred years can understand a lot of history. That's a lot of people who had no opportunity to understand the context. So how, and and I'm not trying to lead the question or talk about um any theology about what happens to those people in any eternal sense. I'm more just speaking like, are they ever going to get a fair shake at understanding the Bible? I don't know about, so about fair shake um you know for centuries most of the world was illiterate um and the idea was that there would be people uh faithful people people in the church who would give their lives to properly understanding and properly relating the meaning of the bible and people went to church to hear the people who uh, had studied and were more learned uh, to to help them understand. We live in this very different American context where we don't recognize expertise in almost anything. Um, my opinion is as good as anybody else's. I have to understand exactly the same as everybody else. We've just come through a, a period of time in our nation where, um, you know, um, everybody with a blog became a medical expert um, and there were people that knew more things about medical than other people. Um, and while 
again, on a devotional basis, there is plenty in Scripture to motivate and convict and transform and change lives. But at the same time, there needs to be people who are keeping the historical context very much uh, up front so there's not mistakes. And we can go back through historical mistakes where people haven't done that, and after centuries or generations, there's a drift into something that later becomes a quite dangerous idea because no one was there to say, whoa, stop, that's not what was going on in the history of that time. And so it, it does operate on two tracks. The one, the fact that one exists doesn't disallow the other one. Totally. And I, I think I agree with you there as when we're talking about, um, you know, whether something's spiritually relevant or only relevant after um, study. And yes, it is true. Uh, we in America have a terrible habit of not trusting um, people who have just frankly uh, read more, studied more, um, done more experiments on things when it comes to science. <laughs> and uh, that is a very significant issue. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit to talk about a, a little more theology. Um, uh, you know, you, you teach at a Nazarene university, and I know um, there's a pretty big emphasis in Nazarene theology on evangelism. Um and there's definitely less emphasis on predestination, if if any emphasis at all, and much more on the individual's choice to follow Jesus or not. Um, I don't know what it, maybe maybe obviously you can't answer with um, absolute certainty, but what do you think happens to people who actively choose not to follow Jesus? I love how you phrase that question. I, let me commend you for the very honest way you phrase that question. Um, I like that very much. Um, I think when we, when we actively choose to reject God, God allows us to live in the consequences of our choice. And we get to, we get to live in the absence of God in this life. Um, and then we also get to li to live with the absence of God. Now, what happens after death is a much larger question. I, I can I can get into that if you if 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 you wish. There's a couple different schools of thought um, historically within the church. There's the there's the school of thought that there's this place of punishment, um, and the other school of thought is is that the the unrighteous those who actively choose to reject God will simply cease to exist. They will not enjoy the benefits of eternal life. Um, so um, both of those have been thriving parts of the church. Um, both have biblical support. Um, and so I think we are, we are, God does not shout us down. I'm going to be consistently Arminian. God does not, shout us down, overcome our own choice. He allows us to live in our rejection, and he allows us to live with our acceptance of grace. And so God allows us to go our own way. Yeah, and that's a view even when I went to a Calvinist Bible school and even kind of identified as a Calvinist, I still took on kind of a more C.S. Lewis approach to the hell of it's more a kind of God almost giving up on you, which again, sounds pretty harsh. Um, and I think you're saying something a little bit nicer than that. Um, 
where i'm gonna harp on this afterlife thing just a little more what's your um maybe new testament evidence if there is any for that perspective of god just um letting people live without him if they uh if they reject him it's numerous it's as easy as probably the first bible verse that most people ever learned going to sunday school or vacation bible school for god so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life it doesn't say that that uh that those who believe in him should not suffer eternally in an ever sulfury burning hell with rags on their rags of clothes and devil's fork poking them. That's kind of the Dante's Inferno version of things. The very simple, it's a very simple sentence in John, uh, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. Um, I think the world I see is a lot, I see a lot of dead. I see a lot of dead in the world. I see a lot of dead in people. As I grow older, I see more and more dead in me that is constantly needing to be brought back to life. Um, and so, you know, Paul talks about handing other, handing people over to Satan. Paul talks about those that formerly contended for the faith. Uh, John, the Gospel of John says, uh, um, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, uh, remain in me. Those who not will be, you know, uh, cat, pruned away, cast off. Um and so there's a lot of different instances. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not a matter of God giving up. I, it's, his grace is always there, always calling, always beckoning. It's respecting our decision to say no and not overriding us. Yeah, um, sounds good. Maybe the last part I'll push back on this point is just... Um... It it can be, yeah, so maybe not God giving up on us, but us giving up on him, you know, whatever kind of pastor cliche you want it to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to me now because that's something I would yeah. have said when I was a pastor. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, maybe what's hard about that, though, is it seems like, well, we're still going to suffer in the sense of um, being absent from God or suffer in the sense of not getting the full extent of his grace or whatever. Um, still seems cruel, maybe not as cruel as some of the grosser, um, you know, problems that, uh, different, uh, Christians throughout history have, have, have touted with different, um, horrible versions of hell that are certainly not biblically founded. Um, so, so I don't know, like, how do you resolve that thing that still feels a little unjust about it? I, I, I'm, so if you're talking about that the a paradigm where someone suffers eternally in hell for a very temporary arrogance or temporary rebellion on earth i i'm with you i i'm all on board i'm in i'm in your camp on that one um there is a justice of god issue there that i think we have to deal with and some people in church don't want to deal with the other part is when we are consciously consciously and actively rejecting again and again and again and again, saying, I don't want any part of this. 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 Um, And God says, okay, you got what you want. I'm, I'm struggling with what's unjust about that. 
Now, let's talk about the in-between cases. The in-between cases where... Um, let's talk about the child who grew up in church but with terrible parents and was beaten every time that they did something wrong. You know, I'm talking you know, abusive, some abusive situation. And so that child links God with abuse, which is a natural reaction. Um, there's this section in Romans where Paul says, um, Romans chapter 2, those that have the law or those who had every uh, ability to know right and wrong and um, rejected anyway will be judged as those who knew the law. But those who don't know the law will be judged like those who didn't have the capacity. Um, but then he talks about there's those who, even though they didn't know, their conscience, they followed the dictates of their conscience and lived according to all the knowledge or all the light, whatever you want to say, was given to them, um, that they'll be judged rightly, not because of some Christian doctrine, but because of they did the best with what they had. And so there's this whole undercurrent of uh, New Testament that we're not all going to be judged the same because we all didn't have the same capacity. We all didn't have the same ability. And and so I think I'm comfortable with the idea that I'm going to be judged according to what I had the capacity to know and what was understandable or what was expected possibly for me to know and also be judged according to how often, how vigorously I choose to reject that grace. And the thing is, I don't, I don't know what that standard is, and I think that's why the New Testament jumps up and down this, to say that's why we're not to be in the business of doing that. Let's leave that up to God and just love other people. Cool. Awesome. Um, you know, I'm actually a pretty big fan of Jesus <laughs> still. Uh, you know, good quotes, uh, good character in history, and I don't mean to say that in any reductive sense. Um, I mean it in, like a, in a very meaningful sense. Um, and I think understanding him as a figure in history is undeniably valuable for one's personal spirituality. But are only Christian figures important to study in order to grow in spiritual understanding? Well, of course not. I mean, I would say that there's a lot of people who have tremendous character. Um, you know, I, I, I think one can certainly look at, let's say, a life like Gandhi and understand sometimes the power that nonviolence might have in certain situations. One can look at, uh, um, you know, a variety of people and see certain character traits, see certain things that they did well, even certain things that may be principles, whether they got them for Christianity or not, but certain were are Christian principles as well. And I think we can learn from them. I, 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 I can, I can learn from a variety of people that aren't Christian and have it inform my Christian life. Totally. And I had this perspective when I was a Christian as well. Um, but to push maybe even a little further, does it still have to relate back to Christianity, though, in order to have spiritual value? Or I guess I could phrase it even more directly. Is there such a thing as spirituality that is not Christian spirituality? Well, heavens, yes. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a catchphrase right now that's been going on for the last generation or so where someone says, you know, I'm not very religious, but I am spiritual. 
Um, I tend to start the conversation the opposite way. I'm not very spiritual at all, but I am religious. Um, so I, I, I think that, and what I mean by that is I'm not a touchy feely guy and I, my people laugh at me. I can walk through a room of 30 people crying and not notice anybody's upset. Um, but that's just me. Um, and so I, no, I think, I think there is a spirituality, people that are in touch with themselves in touch with other people around them. I think there is spirituality, but I don't view spirituality as a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that can be either one. And so I think there are there are spiritual disciplines that can exist in the Christian life, and there are spiritual disciplines that can exist outside of a Christian life and maybe what I would consider to be a less than productive path. Fair enough. Um, I will say that's kind of interesting. Would you say there's such, since you don't view spirituality as good or bad, I assume you do view um, Christianity or at least proper Christianity as good or bad. Am I, am I missing something there? No, you're not missing anything. No, okay. Christi- yeah, I view Christianity as good, as helpful. Yes. And that's, you know, trans context, trans time. That's all the time everywhere. Um, for every well, I, but maybe for every person might actually be the best way to ask that question. Yes, I think so. And and again, that's probably a little more individualistically focused that usually I'm comfortable with because I I think Christianity is about the collective flourishing more than it is about any individual at any place and time. And I think in our culture we kind of lose sight of the collective because we're so focused on the individual. Buy my book. You can buy my book. Yeah, take a look at burnerbooks.com. Take a look at burnerbooks.com. You can buy the cult of Christianity. A church's control containing burn at burnerbooks.com. It's by me, John Burner. Go out and buy my book by the cult of Christianity at burnerbooks.com. I definitely agree that we can get hyper-focused on individualism, especially in American culture. Um... Yeah, I'm still struggling with that only because, um, well, first off, there's there's so many different good people um, in the world, right? And we're not even talking about, um, you know, this kind of like, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? I'm, I'm thinking of people who have heard the gospel, said, that's a cute story, or that's this or that's that, moved on with their life, uh, and were, were great people. Um, what I don't I don't see how any justice. Maybe I'll phrase it this way: One of the hardest things about um, New Testament stuff is when you feel like you're a better character than God is. Now, there's one way of looking at that and saying, "Oh, that's problematic because that's elevating yourself above God, and God's a very different kind of being than you are." You can go that route for sure. Um, but you can also go the route of like, yeah, but then why am I created with this sense of justice or this sense of um, choosing between two instincts or however you want to phrase it? And yet, 
mine feels like it is more loving or even not even I don't even mean feels in the touchy feely way. I mean, like uh, conceptually seems like a more loving disposition than the Christian doctrine. Um, That's what I wrestled with a lot before I left the faith was it seems like I'm actually a better person the less Christian I am. Um, Do you think that's just because of how bad Christians are at being Christians now or is something else going on? You know, I'd have to unpack that a little bit more. um, I think that often, um, often our idea, often I get into a discussion with people and, and, and they say, I don't believe in God. And my next question is, can you tell me about the God you don't believe in? And it's often a God that I don't believe in either. And I don't think it's the God revealed in Scripture. And I think there's a lot that flows um, from a list of presuppositions that we carry into things. And we've never gotten outside of our presuppositions. So back to your original, there was a lot in that last bit. I think one of your original things was, what about the person who hears the gospel and says that's a cute story, and then goes on and lives a very moral life. Um, what about that person? And I would, I, I would have to say, I want to know what gospel they heard. I want to know who they heard it from. I want to know about all their experiences that led them up into that point. I want to know about the kind of life they live and how they arrived at that. See, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of God in th- in moving in places um and almost un- imperceptibly underneath the surface. I'm back to Romans 2 again, where someone was actually living according to all the light that they had and the, and all the conscience that 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 they had ever been exposed to. And I don't know what kind of gospel presentation they heard or what led them to that moment and so i i'm kind of not able to make that judgment and so i i think there's going to be a lot of people who live these wonderful lives and we're almost unaware of the source of that or it was certainly not a god they're familiar with and maybe it was the, the god that was presented when they heard the gospel is a god that we're all unfamiliar with as well there's just so many questions in there um but I'm just I'm very happy to leave the judging up to God and I think there's a lot of grace far more grace than I think that um a lot of us care to even be aware of um but at the same time I think I have the capacity to always reject and I don't know how those two forces interact but it's not my business to know so I'm very comfortable leaving that in the hands of somebody else well, that's a great answer, honestly. I'm, uh, you know, uh, like I'm, I'm all for leaving judgment up to uh, someone who's not another human, who's not another um, person trying to, um, you know, it, it, you know, in the intellectual way, just process data. I mean, that's what we're kind of doing as humans in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not trying to take the poetry out of it, uh, but we're all we're all on the struggle bus, so to speak. Um, maybe one more question kind of related um you keep talking about this you know uh concept of uh you know someone who is doing the best with what they got basically and how that's specifically addressed in the new testament um well maybe it is uh we could go back to the context and he's certainly talking about um 
a different context than ours and we're doing uh the the work to cross the bridge and try to make it applicable which there's nothing wrong with doing that um and uh i think what's getting really hard for me at that intersection is saying well aren't we all doing the best with what we got and again what makes christianity um relevant any more so than uh star wars or any other good story that can teach you a lot about fundamental truths um about how humans work and about how we interact with uh the divine whatever the divine may be um well if if you are under the impression that we're all doing the best we can i need to move that where i need to move to where you live because they're not driving on the tri-state in Chicago um, or the Eisenhower. Um, most of the people I see in the world probably aren't doing the best they can with what they have and are often quite committed um, to pursuing a destructive path themselves at, at Actually, the expense of I, them. I do Go want ahead. to interject and clarify there. Uh, yes, there totally exist people who do not live up to their potential. But what I will say, though, is on an individual level, I mean, we can't know, like even even in the analogy, like I can't know if that's as good as someone drives or not. Maybe it is. And maybe they're driving to do something uh, that they have to do. And this is where it kind of gets we're doing a lot of maybes and hypotheticals and stuff. But it actually does kind of become central where Christians are often divinely certain about so many things. Um and so I guess the, the reason I wanted to chime in real quick is just to redirect like, yes, it's probably we're not all doing the best we can all the time, but probably most of us are trying or at least might be trying. And there's certainly no way of knowing who is and who isn't. Oh, I agree with that. I, I mean, I agree that I'm not sure most people are. I think a great number are. Um and 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 I, I agree, we don't know what other people deal with. We don't know. I can just tell you that in that in my uh I wish that everybody would have had my grandpa Ward and my grandma McCorder, two grandparents, as part of their growing up. I mean, two better examples, two wonderful, fully formed, mature Christian humans if they've existed i don't know of them and i got the benefit of both so i'm without excuse but there's a lot of people that dealt with stuff that i just have no idea of and i have to live that way at the same time and i don't know when you say christians are divinely certain i i don't know what that means um because I, what a guy who a Christian who's certain of everything, who's, you know, certain that Wendy's is the best meal that ever has been existed or that Chevy's built the best car, you know, people with opinion on everything and happens to be a Christian. I'm not sure that that's the standard for that should represent the church. I think we probably should let, you know, the, the councils and the articles of faith that, that, that people have kind of be the standard of what Christianity actually believes. Um, but, uh, you're right. We don't know. And that's why I think um, but it, that, that we need to treat people that way. At the same time, we can make some bigger statements. We do know some things that lead to human flourishing and things that don't. I think I'm very comfortable with a church that says, um, 
you need to be very careful. You need to stay away from illicit drug use. You need to be very careful with alcohol. Um, adultery is a bad idea all the time. Um, marriage is something special. Uh, I think there's some blanket statements you can make because of how it impacts humanity. I don't know that's divinely certain, but when it comes to individuals, we need to be careful about what we're divinely certain about when it involves somebody else. We just don't know enough about them to make blanket judgments. Yeah, um, I actually like how you frame that because that actually got more towards where I was trying to go with it. Um, you you brought up the blanket statements that, um, you know, you and I early on, we were saying probably the blanket statement you and I will probably agree with now and forevermore is we should love people. Like, you know, it, it probably, and we probably shouldn't discriminate with our love. You know, like those are pretty big blanket statements. Uh, you know, we can have judgment and, um, you know, make sure our love is actually love and all that good stuff. But right. And we'd have to talk about what that meant, what love means in certain situations too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we might even disagree on some of that, but that's fine. Um, what, what's more interesting is when you say something like marriage, well, marriage is, is not always one man, one woman, uh, marriage is, you know, and so when a church says we know with divine certainty, it is, even though, you know, Moses certainly had more than one wife and, um, and that's just one example, but like there's other statements you made that I'm like, well, maybe we can feel like that's a safe blanket statement, but maybe it's not. And also throughout church history, there's been blanket statements that uh, that church leadership thought was okay for that moment. And in retrospect, we find it horrifying. Um, so I, does that make sense that where I'm trying to get at is like, well, so what is it about um, this New Testament doctrine that is so special other than maybe the Jesus narrative being um, particularly different than some other religions. Other than that, is there any difference? I think absolutely. The, the New Testament is a document completely unlike everything that ha everything that existed at the time. This, that would have been just weird and revolutionary and radical at that time. This idea of loving your enemies, that's crazy. The idea of, of of turning the other cheek? No, whoever has the most power wins in the end. Uh, you know, for instance, you get to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul takes heat from people now who don't understand history and are kind of not the brightest bulbs in the box about, well, Paul was a misogynist because he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, if you've done any casual reading of the Greek writers at the time, be it Socrates or uh, Cicero or Plato or Euclides, they all wrote these things called household codes. And all of them were written to the men, the head of the household, the only people that they even referenced. And it commanded, you know, you have to manage your women because they, they aren't as bright and they can't handle themselves. And you got to be sure your children obey and everything was how they related to the head of the household. Here comes Paul in Ephesians chapter five, and he writes to the women. He writes to the children. He writes to the slaves, which doesn't mean what we think the word means. And which is the first time that these people are directly addressed. If you've been alive in the first century, you'd have thought Paul was off his rocker. Who would have ever heard about directly addressing women in a household code, directly addressing children? Um, this is this is a radical 
different thing. And that's why in every step along the way, once Christianity enters in, the plight of women and children radically, markedly improve throughout history in every part of the world. And I don't think we kind of get understand the role the New Testament played in that. I actually really appreciate you going into that. I used to go into that all the time um, when I was uh, preaching and stuff. Maybe where I've kind of departed from that is um, I'm like, well, but morality is morality regardless of the context. So even if we're like, yeah, Paul was maybe closer to the mark rather than farther from the mark. Maybe Paul was nicer to women than some of the people at the time. That doesn't mean he was good to women. That's like a different sentence, wouldn't you say? No, I would not say that's a different sentence. Paul calls women fellow apostles, an office he gave to himself. Paul called women fellow workers. He's the the first person that we have in history that gave such status to women. It is clear the leader of the church in Corinth was Chloe. In every place he went, women were leaders, had a role that was completely different than any time beforehand. The only way we judge anybody is in their context. There is nothing that's more historically lazy than applying what someone in 2021 thinks they know onto someone in 47 BC or 100 AD or whatever the year is. That is just, it's, it's, it's kind of sloppy history and it's unfair to that person. We, we have to put ourselves in what they had the capacity to know instead of kind of lazily looking back. Well, they should have known what we kind of commonly know now, which 200 years from now might look pretty, pretty dumb or pretty unfair or pretty drastic in its own right. So I think the only way we judge people is, is in that historical context at that time. Fair enough. Um, I, 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 I partially agree with you where I'm getting a little stuck here though, is we're not just saying, uh, Paul's just, uh, yeah, another guy in history. We're saying, uh, Paul wrote some of the most important letters of all time. And uh, same could be said with Jesus, same could be said with anyone. The the idea, I, and this is, I kind of alluded to this with this divine certainty concept, what happens with Christians oftentimes uh, that I've observed um, is it seems <laughs> that they want to um, say this is your most important source for ultimate truth. And it's like, fine, so what is the truth? And then they tell you, and then you're like, wait, by your own standards, this seems wrong. And again, they can fill in the blanks, I guess, with grace anytime they want. But it seems very disingenuous, and because of historical context um, of church history, it feels like uh, the the target's moving um, based on what the Christian needs their narrative to be. I, maybe that's too harsh an accusation, but that's certainly how it seems, at least to me. That that's kind of a very mushy, generalized statement. I I don't understand. I don't I think you'd have to fill that in with an actual concrete historical example of what you're talking about because I think we can say about anybody well I know Christians well I don't again I don't know that you know what Bruce in Flint Michigan and I just the town that popped into my head I don't know that he's the authoritative source for what the church uh stands for much than uh Sergey uh shift line worker in the Ukraine, I don't think is the authoritative source for all things communistic. Um, I think we have to go a little higher than that. 
I totally agree. I, I hope my vagueness is not seen as um, a lack of homework. Uh, <laughs> I want to, what I want to, you know, there's no better example. You know, I recently had um, former presidential candidate Mark Charles on the podcast, and he was fantastic. And one of the things he talks about is the doctrine of discovery that was um, a part of a, a Catholic church council where um, they said, you know, find the lands, destroy everybody, claim them as your own. It's, it, it was essentially one of the first documents that talked about um, Christian colonization. And uh, it was applied later on. Um, Christopher Columbus quoted it. Uh, a lot of people at the beginning of the U.S. quoted it. And it was their justification for Native American genocide. So, like, that's, you know, one example. I think there's other ones, but that's one example of the church using the Bible. And you and I would agree incorrectly, I would assume, <laughs> to, to, make some, to make a statement. But that's what I mean when it says, like, the target's almost moving um, to benefit them. Is that clearing the point I was saying at all? Well, I, I guess, but I think that that would be, I think your example was a bad one. Uh, I, I doubt if a founding father quoted from a Catholic council since uh, they were all Protestants. Um, <laughs> that, that that would be a little historical jump, and we'd it, have it was re- it was requoted. It's not like they were directly it, doing it, but it's that's where the doctrine of discovery started, and then it was uh, continued on past the Reformation. And we'd have to the genocide charge is rather sloppily labeled, but that's a different question for. A different day. Uh, only for the sake of my listener, can you clarify what you mean by that? Um, to hear you talk about it, it was like people made a conscious decision and quoted from a Catholic thing in order. Here's our plan. Our plan is to commit genocide. Um, and actually, historically. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of things that happened that, that shouldn't have happened at that time to, to native populations. But the genocide was largely when Columbus and the Indian uh, shook hands. And later that night when a sailor from Columbus and some native women uh, had sex and uh, we they got smallpox and we got syphilis. So there was a trade of diseases, just that the one that they didn't have any... Um, um, natural immunity to happen to be a little more lethal in, in the short term than the one that we took home, the, the, the white Europeans took home. Um, and I, I just think that a lot of times genocide gets sloppily thrown around when it was just the introduction of smallpox that was, what, 90, virtually the entirety of the death and destruction. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, that's very historically inaccurate, um, only what, because I am... What, what, what part of that's inaccurate? So so to start, that certainly is a, is a thing that happened, but no, it was very intentional to um, kill savages. That's all over uh, literature. I, you know, I don't want to spend all my time just Googling okay. and reading each thing, I'm, but, but, but no. The fact, like, that this that is, the fact that that intention happened, I'm not disputing. I'm just telling you the actual thing that ended up killing most of the native populations was in fact smallpox overwhelmingly. Sure. And I think that's a way of looking that's at my genocide. Only, that's only that, my statement. Yeah. I think you're looking at genocide as the, the actual um, like where, where, what numbers happen the most. Um, I think the, I don't think the word genocide was applied sloppily. I think it was applied accurately um, because uh, there was definitely intention in removing natives um, from that part of the world, and that continued on and on and on. 
Oh, there are some. Yes, I can completely agree with that. I was just talking about again. You went back and you had this Catholic thing and had it in the hands of the Protestants. And at the at the time, that was not the case. You didn't have Protestant founding fathers using Catholic doctrine as a motivation to do the certain thing. That was what was less than probably a little less than accurate. Yeah, that's all. Um, that's. I, again, it's a very specific thing, so I won't spend too much more time on it. The, okay. The, and and I'll I'll just ask for the last word on it only <laughs> only to Good say um, only just to say that like yeah that um that sound I won't last word this because that wouldn't be fair to you. Uh, what I will say is um no that that's kind of actually illustrative of the of some of the problems I have is um this almost. Well, that's not quite what happened. Context is great, and it's and it's true that it's bad to um get all your history from Twitter. I don't you know or like or like to assume that um everything that's uh, trendy or sounds good or sounds like um the right side of history in a blurb is the right morality to have, and that's certainly a problem in our culture right now. So I want to go ahead and just disclaim that for sure. Um, but what I don't want to do is say. Uh, there hasn't been a um, uh, an influence of Christianity and the founding of the U.S. Um, that has been more negative than positive, specifically when it comes to um, sort of uh, nationalist tendencies. When it comes to uh, this um, this founded on Christian principles, even though it really wasn't all all those ideas. Um, oh, we could do uh, another. We could do another because I think that's wildly inaccurate, but we, but that's not for this episode, I'm sure. Yeah, just to clarify, you think it's wildly inaccurate to say we were founded on Christian principles? If you listen to, if you read the words of Adams and Jefferson and Franklin and Rush and Hancock and Washington and John Quincy Adams, uh, in their own words, they would disagree with you. Yeah, no, okay, you and I are definitely on the same page there. Um, uh, but there, it, it becomes trickier when you get into um, sort of culturally what's happening, um, and not just uh, what's written in the in the documents, if that makes sense. But we're digressing quite a bit on that. <laughs> um, I do want to kind of bring it back to the New Testament, and I, I think you and I might agree here. I think we would say that the New Testament is very misunderstood, um, and that these accounts and letters are told, like we've said, from spe- specific perspective with you know specific context and maybe even specific biases um and i don't think anyone can know with any kind of certainty that the new testament is some form of oracle from you know the divine uh it's clearly not right that's a matter of personal faith you know and um personal faith can't be institutionalized and perhaps 90 percent of the problems in people's minds and in church culture comes from that misunderstanding that personal faith can't be institutionalized so uh sort of towards wrapping up um how do you understand your job as a pastor or a new testament professor so i would say that the no one in the church has ever institutionalized personal faith as a reason for understanding the New Testament. That That's just absent in the process and in the articles of faith of various denominations. Um, my task as a pastor is to connect 
people to God and to each other and to create, um, as a result, improve the lives of not only those individuals, but the collective lives of the communities we're in because we're connecting people both to Jesus Christ and to each other. And so as a result, people start to lose a lot of the dead that accumulates. And we, we can start living into this new life, this eternal life, this renewing life that Jesus and Paul spoke so often about in the New Testament. Gotcha. Um, I don't want to question too much of that because, um, frankly, like I, uh, from our conversation, I really do enjoy talking to you and I enjoy, um, your perspectives. And when I read your book, I was, um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll kind of end it this way as a way to also plug your book. Um, (laughs) one of the things I liked about it, um, was how, um, uh, appreciative of extra biblical sources of science of things that sometimes in American evangelicalism are just flat out missing um, specifically from pastors who would rather um, not read and not understand science. Um, And so I appreciate your take on a lot of things. The only problem I really had while I was reading your book is it sounded like, um, it sounded like something almost distinct from Christianity. Is that just because I've been exposed to bad Christians? I, you know, I, I don't want to say that. You know, I, I, I think that. Look, like like any group, I'm sure there's 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 pastors who are doing the best they can with limited knowledge, and maybe they don't have a willingness to expand on that knowledge. Um, <clears throat> and I think there's some good ones out there too. Um, who are not afraid of any truth, not afraid of any pursuit, because they believe that if there is a God and if this God is creator, that any legitimate pursuit of science or anything else will lead back to a knowledge of that creator. So there's there's nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear from science. I have nothing to fear from um, any discipline, be it scientific or psychological or sociological. Um, and so, um, plus in that book, I was purposefully trying not to argue or not to present a case of, well, this is what the critics say, and the Bible says this, therefore it's closed. I was trying to engage the discussion on the basis of the critique and not on the basis of my perspective. I was trying to uh, to be honest to the critique and say the critique has value, and here's how within how they would describe it here's how i think is a path forward does that make sense yeah that's almost an apologetic stance rather than a um like a case in court or whatever or like a a, a mutual footing stance yes um, which is totally okay especially in the context of when you're admitting that that's what you're doing you know <laughs> um, and, and you're saying hey here's how to respond to critiques um, that is quite a different thing than let me prove this. No, and I don't think there's any way to prove. I I, I think the idea that 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 eventually, John, if I John, if if you you're not right right now, but if you give me enough time, I'll argue you into a correct um, understanding. I think doesn't work. It is not very healthy. I, I don't think I could do the same to you either. So <laughs> I think that's a a very safe statement for sure. 
so I just don't think it's that productive. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is introduce the argument to some people that might not understand the argument and might not understand where it comes from. Um, so I was at least trying to familiarize them so when they hear it, they won't be blindsided by it or at least have an understanding of where that comes from. Gotcha. Well, Doug, we're about out, up on time. This has been awesome for me. I hope it's been all right for you. Um, is there uh, is there anything else you want to plug besides your uh, your books or anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. Uh, again, I don't know that your crowd would. If you want to do a, a good kind of intense Bible study on Ephesians and it, that deals with the historical context, I book called. Uh, Ephesians, we are God's handiwork. Just put Ephesians in my name and Amazon will pop up. And also the same for the book of Daniel. Um, those are some great stories. You know, the lion's den and fiery furnace. And probably lot, even a lot of your listeners, if they don't appreciate it now, heard those as kids. And this, again, I'm going back doing a historical deep dive into some of those stories that might help inform them or at least appreciate them from a historical perspective and the other one is uh called uh, i object um and put my name in amazon all three books will come up awesome thank you so much doug and uh thank you listener for stopping by if you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book go to vernerbooks.com If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.